Welcome to Faith and Works. Today we are going to begin a discussion of faith and the works of American music. As uh, some of you know from previous podcasts, we uh, start with a, a question that we have in mind. And our question this morning is, is it worth just participating and maintaining an unexplored musical tradition? Or conversely, what is lost by not understanding where our music comes from? Uh, this morning, we're not doing a panel. Uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, engaging an expert who has been on our previous panels, Robert Jones, Pastor Robert Jones. Uh, some of you may know this. It was the producer host of Blues from the Lowlands for about 20 years on uh, Detroit's public radio station, WDET, and also a producer host of uh, another program for about four years called Deep River. He is uh, in it, on the advisory board of the Berkeley School of Music in Boston and uh, is the pastor of Sweet Kingdom Missionary Baptist Church in Detroit. Good morning, Pastor Jones. Good morning, Brother Butel. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Good, good. Uh, happy to be with you this morning. Uh, I am, as uh, uh, Pastor Jones just indicated, I'm uh, Bob Brutel. Uh, and just briefly, I'm an adjunct professor of religious studies and history at the University of Detroit Mercy and uh, am currently the vice chair of the Interfaith Leadership Council of Metropolitan Detroit and the Interfaith Leadership Council is the producer and sponsor of this program, Faith and Works. So again, good morning, Pastor Jones. I'm uh, happy to uh, be the host and to be uh, talking to you. Uh, you have uh, spoken to my class in the past and did all of American music in 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dirty job. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> You did a wonderful job, and uh, I'm glad I've got that uh, on a videotape, as a matter of fact. Uh, so here we are talking about this idea of, uh, of American music, and uh, uh, we're recently uh, – Ken Burns uh, produced and presented a 16-hour program on country music. Mm -hmm. And it uh, deals with some of the themes that we're going to talk about this morning, uh, but uh, – uh, it also um, begs a lot of questions, I think, and uh, doesn't answer some of the questions that, uh, you know, inquiring minds might like to know. So uh, what is it about American music that you think is, um, is in that mix today that we uh, may be uh, losing something by not understanding its roots? Well, one of the things that uh, I think Ken Burns programs in general do is it, it causes us to examine um, something that we love, be it baseball, jazz, country music, whatever it is. And this latest rendition uh, allows us to explore um, country music, but to discover that in country, which we often think of as being particularly uh, white music, there are a lot of black roots. And so for many people, that is an, an amazing discovery. 
Well, when it comes to sacred music, it's even more pronounced that the music that we listen to in a church, regardless of race, denomination, or whatever, chances are it would not be what it is and would not sound like it does without this mixture of both European and African influences. And so I think when we don't explore that tradition, we don't ask those questions, then we don't discover just how amazingly integrated and diverse our music is. Yeah, I I recently saw the video, a uh, long time in production, but uh, only recently been uh, presented to the public of Aretha Franklin's uh, Amazing Grace, which I believe was done in 1969. And uh, I think apropos to what you just said, uh, in the back of the audience uh, on one of the nights when they produced that uh, program uh, is sitting Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we know then that somehow – Mick Jagger's music, though uh, there, it may not be clear to us, has some relationship to the gospel tradition that Aretha Franklin is uh, is uh, so well known for, and that music in general is synchronistic uh, that it uh, that it crosses borders yeah. so easily, right? Even right. though we're segregated and we establish these borders. Uh, the music doesn't uh, abide by those. Uh, why do you think that that is significant in uh, in traditional faith uh, music circles? Well, one of the things that we discover is that, you know, listening to this old music gives us insight as to what was happening with people, you know, so sociologically and politically. You know, I brought a, I brought along a few clips uh, uh, sort of to give us some examples of that. Now, there's a woman— who was recorded by the Library of Congress by the name of Miss Vera Hall. And she gave us a lot of insight as to the music that people were singing, probably even during slavery. And there was this idea of the spiritual. Now, most folks, I think, in the North had not the slightest idea of what black music sounded like in the South in the 1800s. But what you had with the spiritual was this uh, music that, really could be about one thing while it was on underneath about something else. In other words, you had the idea that songs had a double meaning. And it was also a music that was born, being born in slavery, sort of had a, a component of dealing with suffering in it. And um, so when the Library of Congress recorded Miss Hall in the 1940s, she gave us some insight as to what may have been going on in the 1840s or 50s with this old song. So I'd like to like get a little bit of that in and then talk a little bit about it. Trouble so hard. Trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Went down the hill of the day. Soul got happy and stayed all day. Oh, Lordy, trouble so hard. Oh, Lordy, trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. 
So when we listen to her talking about, you know, nobody knows my troubles but God. I went down, but she goes down to the valley, and her soul gets happy, and she stays all day. It's kind of got that amazing um, combination of suffering, but at the same time of saying that, you know, um, I get relief from this spiritual journey that I'm on. You know, that is a kind or, or style of music we don't really hear very much unaccompanied um, and open to improvisation. Um, that's really where, when I think about American music, distinct American music starting, it comes out of that mixture of the European and the African music that forms the spiritual. And that is music that the spiritual and um – the uh, the enslaved people uh, in the uh, in the fields singing these songs in order to make the suffering uh, uh, endurable mm-hmm. uh, is interpreted by white folks as some form of of happiness. Whereas you're pointing out right now that this is a uh, an emphasis of the suffering, but a way of dealing with with the suffering uh, that has a, a deep tradition that uh, we can we, we see a little less today, but but was strong in the sixteenth uh, 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 well seventeenth eighteenth nineteenth centuries during when we had enslaved people from Africa. Right, exactly. In in fact, some historians uh, W. E. B. Du Bois calls this uh, sorrow songs. The idea being that this is a music that people created in the midst of their suffering, but the, but the music itself is not entirely about suffering. It's also about transcending or, or getting beyond your suffering through your relationship with God, through your spirituality. Um, we were talking about how this music, you know, what, what have we lost? In a sense, since we don't have that degree of corporate suffering, then we don't often sing about it, although there are still people suffering. Um, and, and so the music doesn't die in a sense. It just becomes latent. It goes, it sort of goes away, goes quiet, but then it comes back again. And as that music, I, I think we were talking earlier that, um, Randy Giddings talks about this idea of music that cools and then simmers and then boils. And so I think we're in a period of at least cooling, maybe simmering, but it certainly isn't boiling like, like some of the eras that produce the music that we think of when we think of, uh, of, uh, of sacred music at its, at its peak. Well, one of the things that we're exploring through these podcasts is what is religion becoming and um, what might be left behind. Uh, it seems to me uh, that one of the things that religion does is provide a, uh, a wide open market for music, not limited by the, the capitalistic idea of making money with a record that the uh, the value of the music is in its expression uh to uh, relieve suffering in the case we're talking about now but to also 
be available for happiness and praise and all the other, you know, things that would be on a continuum of the things that music does. Uh, that started, uh, that, that's really clear, I would say, and starts with these spiritual songs that, uh, are heavily influenced by the rhythm, rhythms of Africa and the rhythms of work. Uh, in an atmosphere where there is no money to be made by making music. Right. Yeah, you, it's interesting that even right from the beginning of what we call American music, when you have someone like Stephen Foster, who's basically operating out of uh, New York in the Five Points, and he sort of creates this imaginary black music. Uh, that's the stuff of, uh, you know, Mammy and, uh, and you know, the the old gray mare and all that kind of stuff. And um, so for many years, America sort of thought that that was authentic black music because the idea of making money on music is much different from the idea of making music. Um, you find these parodies of black music that was a part of minstrelsy, that was a part of even in the early part of the 20th century with artists like Al Jolson or uh, Eddie Cantor. And it was not at all unusual to see a movie where a guy would put on blackface and, and nappy wig when I was growing up to see that these they were doing these songs that were supposedly packaged as a part of African-American culture, though no African-American other than another black minstrel performer would necessarily be performing it. Um, it's only when you start to get into the maybe the late 1860s, early 1870s, that you start to get a representation of black music. Even then, it may be Europeanized, but you get a group like the Fist Jubilee Singers, and they will um, pull together as a fundraiser for the school this group of singers who toured and would take traditional black music, um, give it a European flair, but take it around the world, and all of a sudden people were experiencing authentic black music. Um, and so we have a, a little clip of that. It's a, a song called... Uh, uh, done what you told me to do, uh, from around, I think 1909 is when the recording is, but the tradition goes back, you know, maybe 30 more years. Oh, Lord, I've done what you told me to do. Oh, Lord, I've done what you told me to do. So, you know, that idea, oh, Lord, I've done what you told me to do, is, is, is um, sort of a, an educated approach to this music and people realize oh, oh, black music has syncopation and it has a certain dignity uh, that we never realized was there. And it has a certain pathos and patient and I'm sorry, passion uh, that we didn't know was there because we had been listening to these broad imitations and stereotypes of black music 
And this music became not only influential in the black community, but it became influential in the white community to people who were sincerely interested in hearing what that African-American expression, spiritual expression was. So very much like you said, the idea of giving this music over to people who are making money on it uh, is a dangerous thing because often the people who use it in worship and musicians themselves uh, are not so clouded by this idea of making money, of create. There is this banjo tradition, for example, that the banjo is a traditional African instrument, but when they found out that uh, the general public was interested in playing banjo in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, these musicians from New York and St. Louis and Chicago started creating black music for the banjo with songs like Darky Fisher's Hornpipe. I mean, just crazy stuff. But the idea is there's a market and we're going to sell what we have. And then when we run out of what we have, we're going to make some more. I think that, that that instrument that you just mentioned, the banjo, is an interesting uh, instrument and, and I think pivotal uh, to an understanding of where this music comes from because it's both a string instrument and a, a rhythm instrument. Um, it's a drum with strings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, say a little bit about that uh, drum with strings and how important it is to the uh, the early music. The belief is that the banjo came over on slave ships. The uh, the idea for the banjo, I'll take that back. The idea of the banjo came over on slave ships that you had this instrument called the Akanting from West Africa that had three strings, one long, one medium, one short. The short string is still retained in the five-string banjo, um, but that it had this idea of rapping on the head of the banjo to, to have that drum and sort of letting the strings get in the way to give you a melody at the same time. And uh, this was an, uh, a made-up instrument that you could have seen on any plantation. Um, and as musicians and artists started to depict black music on the plantation, usually even in a broadest caricature, you had um, some enslaved person playing a banjo. It just became synonymous with the image of the slave. That was the instrument of slavery. And of course, that instrument, uh, white musicians adopted it, fell in love with it. A guy by the name of uh, old Joe Sweeney um, adds a fifth string to it, not the short one, but another long one. And uh, all of a sudden it becomes the instrument of the, of the, uh, of the minstrel show of minstrelsy. And it becomes an instrument of Appalachian music. And then it becomes an instrument of country music. And so over a period of 150, 200 years, this instrument that started as a homemade West African drum with strings on it becomes the instrument of bluegrass. It's just a fa- it's fascinating how that, how that works. And it demonstrates uh, the synchronicity because you have the drum with strings added to it and then you have fiddlers, right, mm-hmm. who are – uh, you know, uh, bringing the, uh, you know, European music to the, to that scene. Yep. And hopefully in another segment, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that this is uh, this is a good beginning, and uh, I'm hopeful that uh, folks who uh, have been listening to uh, Faith and Works as we talk about the works of music will uh, tune in and uh, listen to future uh, podcasts where we will uh, expand on the things that we've raised this morning. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, You have been listening to the Faith and Works podcast, sponsored by the Interfaith Leadership Council of Metropolitan Detroit. You can contact us, give us suggestions for future programs, or comment by email at Faith and Works Podcast at gmail.com. The music you are hearing is Retro Soul by Bensound.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>